and um, people go there for vacation, people retire there, and people go there to study the rainforest, to study the cloud forest. They have rainforest, they have cloud forest. The cloud forest is a rainforest but up in the mountains. And so my parents lived outside of San Jose, the capital, up in the mountains, and the clouds would go through the mountains. Well, when scientists go there to study the, the rainforest or the cloud forest, they study different parts of it. Sometimes they will study the leaves of the forest. So this is a beautiful vine called the Passiflora vine. It's, it's, it's a flowering vine that, that produces passion fruits, and so they have a uh, a very sweet drink there, a combination of passion fruit juice and orange juice. If you have a sweet tooth, it's, it's what the doctor ordered. But when the scientist goes there to study leaves, for example, the scientist studies the shape, the color, the leaves of the vine. Or versus, in, uh, as opposed to studying leaves, sometimes they go and they study the trees of the forest. This is a ficus tree called a strangular tree because the, the tree grows around another tree and it literally strangles the other tree. My parents had one of these in their backyard. And so as you see the tree, you see, as you see the, the, the ficus tree, you can see the other tree that it's enveloping and, and choking. And then after many, many years, that interior tree that has been strangled by the, by the ficus tree, it kind of decays and goes away, and then you have a hollow tree, and sometimes people climb up through the middle of the hollow tree. And so when the scientist comes and studies versus the leaves of the forest, details, the color, the shape of the leaves of the forest, sometimes they go and they study the trees of the forest, and they'll study the age, the shape, the size of the tree, or sometimes they go and they study the forest itself. But in order to study the cloud forest, you have to, have to get above the canopy there in Costa Rica. This is uh, the Monteverde cloud forest, and Mon Monteverde means, means a green mountain. And so you have to get up sometimes as high as 10 stories high above the canopy to look at the forest. And you can see for miles there in the Monteverde cloud forest. If you're not adventurous and you don't want to actually climb up 10 stories on a tree, then you get the view from a, from a skywalk or from a gondola, and you'll have this kind of canopy tour. Well, that's what Bible students do. Bible students sometimes study the leaves, the details of the leaves, the veins in the leaves, the contour, the color of the leaf, and you do that through, through a particular verse, right? You take a verse and you study it in detail, you study the, the Greek or the Hebrew, you break it apart and you put it back together, you study the leaves. Sometimes you just study the tree, like you'll study a theme of a chapter or a theme of a book. And sometimes you get above the canopy and you look at the whole cloud forest. You'll study something that runs through the Scripture, a theme that runs not in a chapter or in a book, but in chapters and books. And that's what we're going to embark on today. We're going to embark on a canopy tour, on a tour of a theme, themes that run through the Scripture. We're going to embark on a tour of the covenants, a study of the covenants 
the covenants specifically are the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. We'll see those in a little bit more detail just from a big picture standpoint in a few minutes. The covenants are an essential part of God's meta-narrative for history. You know what a meta-narrative is? A meta-narrative is a big picture. It's the big story. There is the big story in the Scripture. Sometimes we look at the details, the leaves of the tree. Sometimes we look at the tree. Sometimes we look at the forest. The forest is the meta-narrative, the big picture of the Bible. It is creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. And so the covenants give us a picture of the meta-narrative of the Bible. The covenants with the dispensations provide a roadmap for history. And in the end, history is not about you and it's not about me. History is His story. And so the covenants are an essential part of this roadmap. This morning I'm going to touch on an introduction to the covenants and then we'll see a little bit of the very first covenant that, that is the, at least one of the major covenants in the Bible, which is the Abrahamic covenant. Let me begin with the word covenant. Where does it come from? It comes from the Hebrew word berit. And berit means a, an agreement or, an, a co- or a covenant or a promise. Think of a contract. right? When you enter into a contract with somebody, it's a promise. Now, you can have a 75-page contract, like the contracts I used to work on with 10-point font. That's why I, wear gla- why I wear glasses now. I didn't used to have to wear glasses. You can have a 75-page contract with tiny font, or you can have an oral contract, covenant. A covenant is a contract. A covenant is, is a contract, an agreement. And all an agreement is, or, or, a, or a contract is, is a set of promises. One party promises one thing, and another party promises another thing. Now, you can lay it out in 75 pages, a big complex agreement between super big companies, or your contract can be very straightforward. It can be an oral contract. My brother and I, we worked outside a lot when we were kids. We had a lawn business, painting business. And so, like, if we were doing a painting contract, we'd say, can we paint your house? And you'd say, sure. And we'd enter into a bilateral covenant, a conditional covenant. And you can either have a bilateral covenant or you can have a unilateral covenant. You can either have a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant. Bilateral, by, you know, two, means in the covenant, in our arrangement, for me to paint your house, it's bilateral. I have an obligation to go buy the paint, bring my paintbrush, bring my rollers, bring my tarp, and paint your house. That's my obligation. Your obligation is to pay me. So we each have an obligation. They're bilateral. Or you could, say, you could think of it from the, from the perspective of conditions. We each have a, have a condition to our promise. My promise to paint your house is conditioned on your promise to pay me. I don't have to paint if you don't pay. And you don't have to pay if I don't paint. Now, there's some trust there because I have to trust you to, paint, to, to pay me. I'm going to go in there and paint first in reliance on your promise to pay me. 
So usually my brother and I entered into bilateral, conditional covenants. I don't remember a time when we said, hey, we're just going to go spend a couple hundred bucks on paint and go paint your house for a week. They were usually bilateral, conditional. If it was unilateral and unconditional, we'd just come up and say, we're going to paint your house. You don't have to pay us. You don't have to give us a cold glass of water. We're just going to paint your house. That would be a unilateral. We're the only ones with the obligation. Unconditional. There's no condition that triggers my obligation to paint. That would be a unilateral, unconditional covenant versus a bilateral, conditional covenant. Almost all of the covenants that we will study are unilateral, unconditional covenants. But one of them will be a bilateral, conditional covenant. In our study of the covenants, we're going to see both sets. Unilateral, unconditional, and bilateral, conditional. The Old Testament contains four major covenants. And when I say the Old Testament, these run into the New Testament. They color the New Testament as well. Here are the four that I mentioned earlier. The Abrahamic covenant where God made a promise to Abraham. He made this covenant with Abraham. You first find it in Genesis chapter 12. There's also the Palestinian covenant. And the Palestinian covenant is related to the land of Palestine. And in other words, it's a land covenant. But as we get into the, to the study of the Abrahamic covenant, which is comprised of land, seed, and blessing, some people view the Palestinian covenant, because it's related to the land that God promised to Abraham, they view that as a separate, distinct co covenant. I treat it as being part of the Abrahamic covenant, as part of a subset of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, land, the land part of the Abrahamic covenant. So we won't study the Palestinian covenant separately because it's just going to be part of the, the Abrahamic covenant that we'll study. Then there's the Mosaic covenant. God's covenant that he gave to the people of Israel through Moses. It's sometimes called the Mosaic law. It's sometimes called the Sinai covenant or the Sinaitic covenant because it was given at Mount Sinai. God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Then there's the Davidic covenant. God's covenant that he gave to David, a man after the Lord's own heart. That, that's the phrase that you see in 1 Samuel. The phrase, a man after my own heart in 1 Samuel, is a statement where God says, I'm going to choose a man to do my will, because the heart, the lave in Hebrew, is the seat of the mind, the seat of the will, the seat of emotions. It's an old way of saying, your will. And so when God says, I'm going to choose a man after my own heart, David, he's saying, I'm going to choose a man unlike you, Saul, the first of the kings. David is the second king, and the line runs through David because God chose a man after his own heart, David. And in the covenant that God will give to David, that's in 1 Samuel, excuse me, that's in 2 Samuel. The covenant that God will give to, to David is a covenant that is forever. It's an unconditional, unilateral covenant that God gives. But we'll study that when we get to that particular covenant. Then there's the fourth major covenant, the fourth major promise from God that colors the Scripture. At least it colors it 
from the time that God gives this covenant. It's the new covenant. It's God's covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, to use the language of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is in a time when the kingdom of Israel has been split. There's the northern kingdom. They took the name Israel. There's the southern kingdom. They took the name Judah. By the time that God gives the covenant to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is found in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. By the time God gives the new covenant to Jeremiah, the northern kingdom is gone. It's been gone for centuries. Because remember, the Assyrians came in in 722 B.C., conquered the northern kingdom called Israel, and took the people and enslaved them and shipped them off and sowed in the northern part of the land of the Jews foreigners with foreign gods and foreign practices. So by the time Jeremiah, God gives the new covenant to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, the northern kingdom has been gone for centuries. And all that's left is the southern kingdom, Judah. And so when you see this phrase in Jeremiah 31, I, will give the, I give this covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The house of Israel has been long gone. But what God is saying is the covenant that he gives is for all of Israel. And that house of Israel will be reestablished. The nation of Israel is a nation that will exist forever and ever. And we'll see that when we get to these covenants. These are the four major covenants that we find in the Scriptures. And before we begin, we begin that study, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to touch on the Noahic covenant, which is not one of the major covenants in the Scripture like these four. It's an important covenant. It's just it's not as... It, it doesn't impact the Scriptures as significantly as the other four covenants that I just mentioned. I want to talk about the Noahic covenant for a few minutes. And then I want to talk about covenant theology. The Noahic covenant is an important covenant. It's found in Genesis 9. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. And just by way of context, when we get to Genesis 9, the, the, the background here for Genesis 9 is that God has destroyed the planet in the sense that He has brought a worldwide flood because of the great evil and wickedness of the people of the people of the earth. And he told Noah to go build a boat. Everybody laughed at Noah. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Noah, build a boat? What do you, you need to build a boat for? It doesn't rain. Because back then it, there wasn't rain from the sky. The way God irrigated the, the soil is through water that came from underneath the soil. They'd never seen rain before. So God instructs Noah to build an ark. Everybody laughs at him. Then it starts raining, and everybody looks up and says, oh, that's interesting, for a few minutes. And then it just kept raining and kept raining. And so all of humanity, except for Noah and his family, are killed in the flood. And all the animals, except for the animals on the ark, are killed in the flood. Then in Genesis 9, verse 9, they're off the boat, and we read this. This is God speaking to Noah. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant, my berit, with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. And of all that comes of the ark and all that comes out of the ark and every beast of the earth. So here we see the covenant. 
Who's the covenant with? The covenant has multiple parties, right? God is party number one to the contract, to the covenant, to the agreement, to the promise. God is party number one. And then Noah and his descendants, in other words, all of humanity, and the animals are party number two. What's fascinating to me is that the animal's destiny is linked to our destiny, right? When, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, the lion didn't eat the lamb. The wolf didn't eat the chicken. They were herbivorous, just like humans were herbivorous in the garden. Everybody ate the plants, but after the fall, something changed. After the fall, the bobcat is looking for the chicken, right? The, the coyote is looking for the rabbit, and they consume each other. We even consume meat. Now, God said that's fine for us to eat meat after the flood. When Noah gets off the boat, God says, you can eat, gives permission to eat animals. I like steak. I like chicken. Nothing wrong with that, because God gave that permission. But what happened is when, when humanity fell, the animal kingdom fell with it. And when all of the generation, Noah's generation, was in wickedness, and God brought judgment to the planet, to the whole generation, He judged the animals too. They were all killed, except the humans and the animals were killed, except for the, those who were on the ark. Then they get off the ark, and God makes a covenant with the humans and with the animals. The Noahic covenant that we're seeing here. Because the animal's destiny is tied to the human's destiny, to our destiny. Because God created us as His image bearers, as His agents to rule His creation. And that's why when Christ returns, creation will be transformed. When the one who is fully God, fully man, the Savior, not just of us, priority number one, but even of the earth and the animal kingdom and the planet, the deliverer, that is. That's why Paul talks in Romans about how nature groans under the curse. The curse will be reversed when Christ returns. I just wanted to point out the link between nature and humanity. We're not animals. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that, that we are monkeys who have lost our fur and gained opposable thumbs the way your culture teaches you, the, your government, your education, inst educational institutions. I'm not suggesting that at all. No, we're the pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day. Don't put me on the same par as the monkey that slings its excrement against to the other monkeys. That's not me. That's not you. You are the pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day. Now, are we sinners? To be sure. Because Genesis 3, we sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And we confirm that by committing our own personal sins. But what we see here in the Noahic covenant is that the covenant is between God and all of humanity, Noah and all his descendants. All of us are descendants of Noah. Now, it's true we're descendants of Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve have, all, have, 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 have children, and then you have all of this population. All that population is wiped out except for Noah and his family. So we're all descendants of, of Noah. This is the covenant that is given the Noahic covenant that is given to all of humanity and the animals. Keep reading in verse 11. God says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Here we see the substance, the content of the promise. 
The promise is that God's never going to judge the earth again. The promise is that God's never going to judge humanity again. Right? I need a no. That's not the promise. The promise is that God will judge, will never judge again by means of a global flood. By means of a global flood. The scripture is full of the promises that God will judge because if he doesn't judge, he's not God. Right? The reason the world sells and loves the idea of random evolutionary chance, that we are a product of random evolutionary chance, is because if God didn't create, then he doesn't have the right to judge. If God didn't create his creation, then he has no right to judge his creation. And we, as sinners, love the idea that there is no judgment. We love the idea that there is no reckoning. God is not just a God of love and mercy and compassion. He is that, to be sure. To be sure. But he is also a God of judgment. And here you see this fierce judgment back in Genesis and the Noahic covenant, the substance of the Noahic covenant, the content of it is, I will never judge again this planet. I will never judge humanity. I will never judge the animals through means, through the means of a global flood. Are there regional floods? No question. Just live on the coast of Texas. You see regional floods all the time. The reference here is to a global flood. Is this covenant bilateral or is it unilateral? It's unilateral, right? God's the only one who's making the promise. Noah is silent. He's just saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm here to listen. I mean, his mind is right. He just got off the boat. And there's been this global judgment. That's how God makes our, gets our minds right. To quote an old movie line. Maybe I shouldn't quote that movie. But that's how God gets our minds right. Sometimes he knocks us down to, to, to get us to look up. Noah is hearing the promise from God. It's a unilateral promise. I will never flood the earth. I will never destroy the earth. I will never, never judge the earth through global judgment. The scripture is clear that God will destroy the earth. He will just look, look, at, um, look at Revelation 21. He will destroy this earth and create a new earth and a new heavens. He's not going to do it through a global flood. I think he's just going to speak it. He's going to do it through fire. So here we see the promise being unilateral. God's the only one who makes the promise, and it is unconditional. It's not dependent on humanity. It's not dependent on Noah doing anything. It doesn't say, I will never judge the earth through a global flood if human beings don't do this, don't do this, don't. That's not what it says. It's just unconditional. I'm never going to judge the earth again through a global flood. So we see a unilateral, unconditional covenant here in this context. Then in verse 12, we get the beautiful sign of the covenant. Keep reading in verse 12. God said, this, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud and that shall, it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud of the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant. When he says remember, it's not that God forgets. It's not that he's saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. The, 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 the rainbow's there. That reminds me never to judge by a global flood. That's, that, that's not what it means when it says God remembers. 
in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, the idea of remember means to act. The idea of to hear means to obey. And so it's this idea that God will always act to not judge through a global flood. I mean, we deserve judgment. There's no question about that. We're sinners. I mean, just look at the world. The world is incredibly wicked. And the wickedness seems to intensify every time we turn on the news app, right? So we deserve the judgment. No question about that. It's that God in His mercy, doesn't judge in this fashion anymore because of this covenant. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Verse 14, It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant Berit, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sign here as of the promise to humanity, to even to the animals, not that the animals perceive the way we perceive and think the way we think, but the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Most people, here's a beautiful image of a rainbow there in, in, the, um, in the Monte Verde cloud forest. All the, the dimensions of the, the colors are pictured there in the rainbow. It's a beautiful, beautiful sign. Most people, when they see the rainbow, they don't think of God. They don't think of the covenant that God has given us. They think instead of something beautiful in the sky. And it is that, but it's much more than that. Often people think of the LGBTQ movement when they, when, when they think of the rainbow. And I must say that's, that's ironic. I mean, it's ironic that that movement, which the, the Scripture describes as, as, as wickedness and, and as abominations, I mean, that's the word that is used, abomination. It's ironic that that movement would adopt a symbol that is associated with the judgment of God. Because the rainbow is associated with the judgment of God. It's God promising that I won't judge through a global flood anymore. So this is the Noahic covenant. It's a covenant that I say is not a major covenant. It doesn't affect doc many doctrines in the Bible. It's an important covenant because every time you look at the rainbow, you should think of God. Every time you look at the rainbow, you should think of God's faithfulness to not judge again, through that fashion of a global flood. It's an important covenant, but it's not a covenant that colors many, many books in the Bible, that colors many doctrines in the Bible. So I just wanted to spend a few minutes on that covenant, and then I want to talk about the concept of covenant theology. It is important to distinguish between covenant theology and the covenants. The covenants, the, the, these major covenants that I mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant. These are literal covenants that are found in the Scripture where God says, I covenant to do this, to do that, to do the other. They're given to individuals literally in the text to Abraham, to David, to Israel. Individuals or groups of individuals. 
Covenant theology is something different. Covenant theology, which sometimes is, is referred to as Reformed theology, is a system of theology that is based on the idea that there is a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace, an arrangement between God and the elect, whereby God offers salvation to the elect, and the elect accept it by faith. And this covenant of grace was entered into back in eternity, in eternity past. This is what the covenant theologian believes. And so that covenant of grace, the so-called covenant of grace, is not a literal covenant that is found in the literal text. It's a covenant that is assumed. It's a covenant that is implied by the covenant theologian. Most, most covenant, covenant theologians are amillennial. There are three views of the millennium. Remember, the millennium is, is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Revelation 20 uses the phrase thousand years six times. And so there are three views of the millennium, three views of the thousand-year reign. There's post-millennialism, there's amillennialism, and there's pre-millennialism. Post-millennialism says that Christ will return after the millennium. Christ will return after the millennium, post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism is not a, thousand, a literal thousand-year reign. It doesn't believe in a literal thousand-year reign. Instead, it believes that there will be a long golden age, a golden age of long duration that will come gradually and consistently as people are converted to Christianity. The more we spread Christianity, the more Christianized human beings become, the more we spread Christian morals, then the sooner the kingdom will come. The kingdom will come not as a literal thousand-year reign, but as a spreading, a gradual, consistent spreading of Christian morals around the world in in a, in, in a way that, that promotes the goodness, the wholesomeness, the winsomeness of Christianity. That's how post-millennialism thinks. As people are converted to Christianity, Christian morals will spread throughout the planet, and there will be an extended age of peace and stability and prosperity. And when that age is finished, when that golden age is finished, not a literal thousand-year thousand-year period, but a long time period where the world has been Christianized and Christian morals have spread throughout the planet, when that long golden age is finished, post-millennialism says, Christ will return. Then there will be the great white throne judgment, and then there will be the eternal kingdom forever and ever. The shorthand way of thinking of post-millennialism, of describing post-millennialism, is the idea that the earthly kingdom is achievable by us. Post-millennialism, you can describe it as the earthly kingdom is achievable by us. The earthly kingdom that is promised in the Scriptures is achievable by us. That's post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism was very, very popular for a number of centuries, from the 1600s into the early 1900s. This was the period where Western civilization was spreading Christianity throughout the, throughout the planet, right? Western civilization brought Christianity to the Western Hemisphere, where the, 
Native Americans were eating each other, literally cannibalism, right? I mean, my family's from Mexico, and in Mexico, the, the at least part of my family's from Mexico, and in, in Mexico, the, the Aztecs, I mean, it's, it's kind of gruesome, but it is what it, the facts are what they are, right? On the, on the sun pyramid and on the moon pyramid in Mexico City, in Tenochtitlan, the land, the, the capital of the Aztecs, they would take their, vic- their victims, the, the Aztecs were a very powerful people, and they would take their conquered peoples, the other Indians that they would conquer, and they would have human sacrifices there on the top of the pyramid so that the, the blood of the human sacrifice would flow out, and they would they'd eat the heart because the heart symbolized the power of the victim, and they would themselves become powerful and strong by consuming, literally consuming the victim. But it wasn't just the Indians, the Aztecs. I mean, there were Indians in Texas. Praise God, they're not, they're not doing that anymore. There were Indians in many parts of North America who did that. And so post-millennialism was this idea that we're going we're gonna to spread Christianity, which is a good thing. I'm not knocking that at all, just to be clear. And by Christianizing the world so that the savages won't be eating each other anymore and and engaging in human sacrifice, that's going to bring about a golden age where the earthly, where the promises of the of the earthly kingdom will be realized in the on the planet. Well, postmillennialism died a quick death after World War I and World War II. The horrors of those world wars, postmillennium, postmillennialism was war. We, that's just not tenable anymore. We can't hold that view anymore because the planet is not getting better, it's getting worse. And a huge part of World War II, World War I, Europe, Western civilization. World War II, half the war was in Europe, Western civilization. And so the whole idea of postmillennialism went by the wayside after World War I and World War II. Then we get to amillennialism. Postmillennialism, amillennialism. Amillennialism is the doctrine that says that there is no kingdom. Postmillennialism, when, when it was rejected after World War I and World War II, then amillennialism, which was a much older doctrine than postmillennialism, which started in the 1600s, amillennialism, which, which existed way before that, but had been somewhat discarded, amillennialism rose again. And so many postmillennialists became amillennialists. Amillennialism says there is no thousand-year reign. There is no future, literal, thousand-year kingdom of God on this planet. With Christ ruling, placing his feet on this earth to rule for a thousand years. Amillennialism says, no, there is no such thing. And instead, the kingdom is spiritual. Amillennialism doesn't say we need to spread Christianity and spread Christian morals, which are good, biblical morals. Amillennialism doesn't say we need to Christianize the world and that will bring a golden age. Amillennialism says we're enjoying the kingdom now. The promises of the earthly kingdom are being realized now in our hearts. It's a spiritualized kingdom, in other words. All the Old Testament messianic kingdom prophecies Amillennialism says, are being fulfilled now, realized in the current age, 
and they're being fulfilled spiritually. They treat the phrase thousand years that appears six times in Revelation chapter 20 as symbolic, symbolic of a long time. In other words, the current age that we're in. When Christ returns, amillennialism says, there's the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the last day, and then the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. So the shorthand way of describing amillennialism is saying that the earthly kingdom is realized now spiritually. Postmillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, millennialism, say that five times with crackers in your mouth, right? Postmillennialism says that Christ returns after we've brought about the kingdom by Christianizing the world. Amillennialism says we're enjoying the kingdom now. It's a spiritualized kingdom. Then there is premillennialism. Premillennialism is that the kingdom is yet future. It is anticipated. Christ will literally, physically reign for a thousand years on the planet, and Christ will literally, physically fulfill the literal Old Testament prophecies that are made that haven't been fulfilled yet with respect to the Messianic kingdom. The shorthand way of thinking of premillennialism is that the kingdom is literal, future, and Christ will bring it. This is what we believe at Fredericksburg Bible Church is premillennialism. I believe it explains the scriptures best. It fits the scriptures best. And so if you want a chart of these three views, I'm borrowing Charles Ryrie's chart here. The three views of the millennium, premillennialism, Christ brings about the earthly kingdom. Postmillennialism, we bring about the earthly kingdom. And amillennialism, the kingdom is here and now, here now spiritually. So premillennialism, you had Christ's death and resurrection. We're in the church age. Christ is going to return. Then there's going to be a thousand-year reign. Then there's the judgment, and then we enter into eternity, the eternal kingdom forever. Postmillennialism, Christ died and resurrected. We're Christianizing the world now, spreading Christian morals. By the way, another reason to not follow postmillennialism, I mean, in addition to the horrors of World War II, Today, we say Christianity, Christianity is on the downturn, right? More and more people are rejecting Christianity, at least in Western civilization. Not so in the third world countries. Not so in Africa. Not so in Latin America. Not so in Asia. But the, the concept of postmillennialism is we're going to bring about this golden age by Christianizing the world then Christ will return, then into the etern- into eternal state, and then amillennialism, there is no millennium. There is, the, the, we're experiencing the, the promises of the Old Testament kingdom. We're experiencing, experiencing them now spiritually. Christ is going to return, and then we'll go into the eternal kingdom. The covenant theologian reads the Scripture through a lens of amillennialism, that we're experiencing the Old Testament messianic kingdom prophecies now. And so they're not looking forward. They're not anticipating. The amillennialist, the covenant theologian, is not anticipating the messianic kingdom prophecies because they're being realized right now, 
spiritually. The covenant theologian reads the Scripture through the lens of amillennialism and through the lens of the covenant of grace between God and the elect. God, between God, the so-called covenant of grace, between God and the elect of all the ages. So in the covenant of grace, there's no room for a distinction between the elect of one age and the elect of another age. In the covenant of grace, there's no room for a distinction. In other words, maybe it's better not to distinguish it between ages. It's, it's better to distinguish it between groups, between Israel and Gentiles. Because there were Gentiles who were saved in the Old Testament, of course. Rahab the harlot or Melchizedek, right? Those are Gentiles, a Canaanite king, Melchizedek. Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament just like Jews were saved in the Old Testament. Gentiles and Jews are saved today as well. But under the covenant of grace, the so-called covenant of grace, the covenant theologian has no room to make a distinction between Israel and the church. And the covenant theologian treats the promises of the Messianic kingdom as already being fulfilled. The reason I make this distinction is because it's important to separate the covenants that are literally given in the Scripture, the four major covenants, and covenant theology, because covenant theology views the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenant as being fulfilled now. There's nothing to anticipate. There's nothing that we're looking forward to. They're being fulfilled now by and through and in the church in a spiritualized way. Not in a literal way, the way that those covenants, as we'll study them, are literally given in the text. So we don't believe that that's accurate. We don't believe that the Abrahamic, the New, the Davidic covenants are simply spiritual covenants. They're literal covenants. They have a physical component to them and a spiritual component. They have both. These covenants may have some fulfillment in the church age. They do have some fulfillment in the church age. But their final fulfillment will be when Christ returns. Their final fulfillment will be through Israel, not the church. We are enjoying some of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, for example. Right? Paul says he's a minister of the new covenant. When he's talking to Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles says, I'm a minister of the new covenant. Jesus said at the Last Supper, when he institutes the communion table, he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. And we as church age believers celebrate the communion table that Christ instituted the night before he was to be crucified. And so we enjoy some of the, some, some, some of the blessings, spiritual blessings only of the new covenant. But the new covenant also has physical blessings, like associated with the land. But we don't enjoy that as the church. That is reserved for Israel because it's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, of the land part of the Abrahamic covenant. So I say that some of the covenants may have some, excuse me, the covenants may have some fulfillment in the church age. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, the new covenant, but their final fulfillment is reserved for Israel when Christ returns, not for the church. With that introduction, let's look at the first of the covenants just briefly today. The first of the covenants 
is the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was a godly man, a man who trusted in Yahweh. Almost 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the life of Abraham. He is mentioned over 40 times in the Old Testament and almost 75 times in the New Testament. He is called the friend of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, half-brother, because Jesus had brothers and sisters who were the product of a union between a, a sexual relationship between Joseph and Mary. Well, Jesus was virgin-born, of course, from Mary. And so that's why I use the phrase half-brother. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this about Abraham. James 2.23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15.6. And he was called the friend of God. Following Abraham's pattern of faith, we are called sons of Abraham. Gentiles, goyim, the goy, at the Hebrew word for Gentiles. We're the sons of Abraham when we follow the pattern of faith. Sons of Abraham, that phrase is found in Galatians 3, 7. We are described as blessed with Abraham the believer. Genesis, excuse me, uh, Galatians 3, 9. Abram, which was his first name before God renamed him, means exalted father. His name was later changed by God to Abraham, Avraham, which means father of a multitude. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This covenant is critical, critical to understanding the scriptures. I love what Dwight Pentecost used to say. When I took his class, Covenant, the Covenants, the Kingdom and the Covenants, this was actually online at this time because he had already passed away, but when I took his class, the Kingdom and the Covenants, he said something at the very beginning that, that, that was, is so impactful. He says, you cannot understand the Scriptures if you do not understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. You cannot understand the Scriptures if you do not understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the beginning of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. It is integral to God's plan for redemptive history. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, read like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are three main points, three main parts of this covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. To the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Abraham doesn't have a child right now. At least not a child, but, uh, well, he doesn't have a child and God is going to make him a great nation through his wife, Sarah, through a union between the two of them. That's the seed. And then in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Land, seed, and blessing. Now, as you look at this covenant, is the covenant conditional or is it unconditional? Is it conditional or unconditional? Well, there is a condition in the covenant. It's the first part of it. There is a precondition. 
Leave your homeland. Right? That's the order from God to Abram. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Leave your homeland. There is a precondition here. His homeland was the city of Ur, located in modern Iraq. Here's a, a picture of the, of the foundation of the ruins of the ancient palace. And in the background, you can see the tower of the pagan temple. Here's the, the wall of that temple there from the tower at, uh, at, at Ur. God told Abram to fulfill a precondition, to leave his homeland, and Abraham did in fact do that. Once he left his land to go to the land that God showed him, the promise became vested. It was vested. The covenant became vested. Abraham fulfilled the first part of the language there in Genesis 12.1. He obeyed God and he satisfied the precondition. Once he did that, then the covenant became vested and unconditional. It's kind of like if you ever had a, a retirement plan at work and you had to work there, maybe it was for a year, year and a half, two years, and then your 401k became vested. Maybe it was a profit sharing. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe your, your, the company that you worked for would contribute profit, would share profit with you once you were there for a year because then you're vested. Same idea. The covenant, the Abrahamic covenant vests as soon as Abraham fulfills the precondition of leaving his homeland. Then it becomes unconditional and unilateral. No other limitations on it. Look how God says, I will. There are no we wills here. Once Abraham fulfills the precondition, it's all I will. I will show you the land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. These are five I wills. No we wills. Five I wills showing the unilateral nature of God's obligation. The unconditional nature of God's obligation. It is very, very, very important to understand the unconditional, unilateral nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Because if it's not unconditional, if it instead is conditioned on Israel's performance, if it is bilateral, it's, if it's, I'm going to do these things for Israel, and Israel, you need to do, ba-boom, 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 and don't do, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. If it's bilateral, if it's conditional, then Israel's toast. They're done, right? Because what does Jesus say, Jesus say in, in Matthew? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone those who were sent to her and kill the prophets. How often I long to gather your children as a hen gathers her hens, her, her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. What Israel did is they killed the prophets. They mocked God's word. And when the prophet, capital P, came, they killed him. And so if the Abrahamic covenant is conditional, if it is bilateral, then the covenant theologian is right. God would be perfectly justified in saying, no mas, no more. No more for you, Israel. Done. Talk about an egregious sin. I mean, how much more egregious do you get by killing the Savior of the world? But the covenant is not 
conditional. The covenant is not unilateral, excuse me, bilateral. It is unilateral and it is unconditional. As we see here, once it vested, it's full of I wills, not we wills. It is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And so it is dependent on the veracity, on the honesty, on the truthfulness, on the generosity, on the largesse of God, on His integrity. This is why it is so important to understand the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. If God doesn't perform the promises that He has made to Israel, then He is no God at all. And you should mock Him like the rest of the world. Don't trust in Christ because your faith is a joke. If God doesn't fulfill His promises that He has made... God has made incredible promises to you that He will redeem you, that He has given you a place in His eternal kingdom. The church, the bride of Christ, incredible. All of those promises are ridiculous. They should not be trusted. They should not be relied upon. If God reneges on His promise to Israel, but God doesn't renege on any promise. He always keeps His word. His promise to Israel is an unconditional promise a unilateral promise. He will perform the literal promises that He has given to Israel, and He will make no mistake, perform the literal promises that He has given to you and me. The Abrahamic covenant is very important to understand as unconditional because if we don't follow the text, the I wills, the unilateral nature of it, then we will be forced into a box. We'll be forced into a corner. The corner is we have to question the reliability of God. we got to question the trustworthiness of Messiah because if Messiah doesn't deliver on the promises of old, I hope He's going to deliver on my promises that He gave me, but you should have no confidence that He will if He reneges on the promises to Israel. He doesn't renege on their promises and He doesn't renege on our promises. Now, well, I guess we're almost out of time, so I'll save that for next time. I'll save the everlasting nature of the Abrahamic covenant for next time. What I want you to remember is that the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and unilateral. God has a plan for Israel, and that plan is not finished. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the church, and Israel is Israel. Two separate plans for two separate entities one distinct God who is faithful, reliable, trustworthy, always has been, always will be. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you challenge us by these things, enlighten us by them, transform us by them, and encourage us by your reliability, your trustworthiness, and your great power. We pray these things in Jesus' name.